electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to Tech Check. I am John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Julia Borston. Today, well, the story was going to be a bounce back from yesterday's sell-off, but that bounce has disappeared. All averages in the red are just about at flatline, and we're looking at semi-software, big tech versus small. And what moves Kathy Wood made to rebalance her portfolio yesterday? What should you do or not do in this market? We will discuss. And then an exclusive with the CEO of cybersecurity giant, CrowdStrike, as that company's stock has quadrupled since its IPO. And finally, a check on Apple. Reviews of the iPhone 13 are out today. iOS 15 out to what Apple's newest hardware and software will mean for the company and the stock call. All right, John, we're going to start, though, with the continuation of uh, this week's sell-off. Dow's down uh, 40 points, giving up uh, all of their early gains this morning. That early rebound now completely wiped out. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, joins us with more as we watch to see if the NASDAQ turns red. Mike? Yeah, Carl, maybe a little unfinished business. Yesterday's final half-hour rebound might have stolen the usual next-day uh, bounce from uh, pretty uh, stretched conditions to the downside. Take a look at the semiconductor ETF. What's interesting uh, about uh, the subsectors of tech relative to the S&P 500. The big news yesterday and Friday was that the S&P 500 kind of broke below its 50-day average. It stayed there for a couple days. That's the first time in 10 months. Well, the semi-ETF is actually sitting right on its own 50-day, and you see that it really hasn't gone back that far in time. Still above the August lows, still in more of an uptrend than the overall market is. Same is true for the NASDAQ 100. You could also take a look at the software sector. Very similar. The magnitude of gains year-to-date is actually on par with what the S&P is doing, but the gains came more recently, and you see that that actually is well elevated relative to where it was trading uh, mid-summer or so, uh, Carl, also above its 50-day average. Does that mean there's more air under these sectors for it to come out and rotate out of? That's one of the questions we'll probably uh, look to answer as we try to gauge the uh, caliber of the attempted bounce this morning. Thanks. I'll pick it up there. And Kathy Wood is known for aggressively rebalancing her ETFs, selling her winners, and using that cash to buy what she sees as undervalued. So how is she playing this sell-off? Kate Rooney has got those details for us. Kate? Hey, Julia. Kathy Wood's ARK Invest swooping in to buy more of those high-growth tech names that were really beaten down in yesterday's sell-off. Robinhood was one of the biggest, ARK adding more than 400,000 shares of that trading app. This was across Two different funds, the Innovation and FinTech Fund. Coinbase, meanwhile, was another. ARK bought a total 96,000 new shares of the crypto exchange. ARK also buying up more UiPath, Zoom, Roku, Blade, and PagerDuty. She also did some profit-taking as well. The sales tended to be a lot smaller, but nonetheless, shedding some shares of Intuit and DocuSign, as well as about 2,000 shares of Amazon. Investors, guys, have been rotating away from a lot of these high-flying names, especially this week amid some of those fears of rising rates and potential economic disruption out of Evergrande and China. As a result, all six of ARK's ETFs were down about an average 
3.6% to start the week. The flagship innovation ETF seen the deepest losses, and so far this year, only two of her ETFs are in the black. You can see they were rebounding a bit today, though, but moving around with the broader market. Wood is keeping her conviction on a lot of these high-growth disruptors. She said at a the SALT conference last week that, quote, we're moving to the other side of this cycle. She thinks the market will start rotating back to growth and innovation. Guys, this is textbook Kathy Wood. She's really known for dip buying in a lot of these downturns. And retail investors tend to watch her playbook for any guidance, especially after ARK Innovations Fund returned roughly 150% last year. Back to you. Hey, Kate, we always turn to you uh, regarding crypto. Uh, Novogratz was on Squawk Box earlier today, and he made the point that even though we think of crypto as an alternative to a lot of assets, at least the tether part of it and the seeming connection to some parts of commercial paper, in this case China, does bring some kind of macro exposure. I wonder how interesting you think that is. Absolutely. That's something that was coming out sort of throughout the day yesterday. We looked at the the crypto and Bitcoin sell-off specifically. It seemed to be sort of a move away from growth. And the other thing I was hearing a little bit later in the day was that people were worried about Tether. So they said from the outset, you know, we don't have any exposure to Evergrande. They said the commercial paper is not backed by Evergrande, but they don't say exactly where in China the commercial paper is. They're backed by majority commercial paper out of China. We don't know exactly where. Of course, if you guys have been reporting over the past few days here, Evergrande is tied to a lot of the Chinese banks. Traders I talk to say this is a potential risk for crypto markets. A lot of traders use Tether to get in and out of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. If there is some sort of fear of contagion, that's what I'm hearing a lot of, that they say, you know, if people decide to try to redeem Tether, it could spark a little bit of fear. That's definitely one of the themes playing out this week. Yeah, uh, well, always throwing us curveballs. Uh, Kate, thank you. That's Kate Rooney. Stick with the market action today. Is today's sell-off just more opportunity? Webbush Securities, head of technology and media trading, Joel Kalina joins us this morning. Joel, I, I'd love to know where your head is right now uh, with tech, whether or not you make the point that it's been looking for reasons for selling off for a while here. But when you combine the Evergrande worries with sort of pandemic trends, seasonality, valuation, um, are we at a true pivot here or not? I mean, I think it's a little bit too early to kind of make that bold prediction. But I think coming out of the summer and really after Labor Day, you did see a clear cut shift in mentality from from the investment community to some degree. And it it kind of feels like the the Apple epic ruling back on September 10th may have been kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. We know that Apple did a lot of heavy lifting to the, the major indices in late August, early September in the face of kind of deteriorating you know, technicals underneath the hood. And, and now it's kind of triggered a little bit of an avalanche of, of selling pressure. And I think, uh, you know, once again, the crowd kind of slowly but surely coming out of the summer went all in on tech. And kind of here we are. We've only had about a 5% correction off the highs. So this is the third one we've seen uh, of that magnitude over the past 52 weeks. So nothing to, to be you know overly panicked. But I mean, I think you're, you're crazy if you think that the, the tech sector isn't facing headwinds. Uh, heading into year end, and whether it's, you know, we're past peak pandemic, still elevate valuations are relatively lofty. And kind of you're seeing, you know, pandemic t- tailwinds slowly but surely continue to fade in the face of difficult uh, growth comps. Right. I do wonder, uh, long term constructive tailwinds that might come into play, uh, the ongoing reinvention of the IT office and hybrid work when it's enterprise. Obviously, the consumer continues to show evidence that they're willing to spend, even though they worry about supply chain and inflation. How much of that comes into play as we get into the Q3 prints and Q4? 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be extremely interesting. You know, we're coming out of the, the, the bulk of conference season, and at least for TMT, for the most part, it's been mostly constructive in terms of demand trends, especially for the software kind of cloud complex. Um, but, you know, you, you, I mean, you got to look at what we've been seeing. You had another three or four warnings last night. Now, granted, they're coming more from the industrial sector. You know, I think every airline on planet Earth has cut guidance at this point. We know, you know, China regulatory threats are showing, you know, no sign of really kind of slowing either. So, you know, it's something to keep an eye on. We know the supply chain, you know, issues and headaches are, are, aren't easing anytime soon. Uh, you're still seeing warnings from the automotive, you know, you know, OEMs about kind of, itch, you know, shortages lingering well into 2022. So I think at least from, from, from a tech point of view, you really want to, you know, keep an eye on what the, what the semiconductor companies say regarding inventory build and, and kind of su- supply and demand dynamics. And then kind of just looking out like consumer tech hardware, you know, names like Logitech, Hewlett Packard, Dell, how they continue to be impacted by the kind of supply chain disruptions, which we know just uh, aren't going away anytime soon, which is going to lead to kind of continued probably revenue shortfalls as well as kind of potential margin headwinds. Yeah, Joel, with all of those headwinds in mind, which of these companies do you think are best positioned over the longer term uh, as you look at this, these different sectors? I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Long, take, take a step back longer term. I mean, I still think the semis is where you want to be. I think you, you keep it simple. The chips have been an absolute beast over the past, you know, three to four years. And, and there's no reason to get off that train quite yet. We know investments from the big three until Samsung, Taiwan semi aren't slowing any down anytime soon. China still continues to ramp up their investments as they want to become a lot less silicon dependent on the Western world. And so I view the semi-equipment names are the arms dealers for 5G AI and high-performance computing. And then even, even further down, you look at the foundries. You know, you're continuing reports of price hikes from Taiwan Semi, UMC, and, and, and Samsung as well. And simply put, higher, higher price equals higher sales and higher margins. And that's not a bad place to be uh, at the moment in the face of uh, uh, all the other kind of you know, noise that's out there in the market. And again, the stocks I want to avoid are the names, the pandemic winners that have been confessing that tailwinds are slowing. So whether it's Chewy, Peloton, Zoom, you know, Logitech I mentioned earlier as well. So I kind of want to stick to the semis. I think they're probably the, the, the safest place to be, at least within the TMT space at the moment. Hey, Joel. Uh, yeah, Bracken Darrell was on us a few days ago and said that uh, supply actually looked pretty good for him. And so did demand, which I think was interesting. And when we have a day like yesterday, I always wonder, has anything fundamentally changed, really? And, and wouldn't we, shouldn't we, shouldn't investors have expected a downdraft at some point? Uh, is there anything that has changed to suggest that there will be further downdrafts and that people should shift their strategy? Or is this just uh, a gut check, a test of people's resolve? I, th- I think it's a combination of each. I think you, I think 2021 has been a tough market, especially for the longshore community. Alpha generation has been extremely choppy, to say the least. Um, and I think you want to kind of be very selective in the horses you want to go with. I mean, what I'm seeing at my end, you're seeing declining or, or non-existent risk appetite for the, the stocks that haven't done well all year. So here we are. We're, we're pretty much nine months through the calendar year. And I don't think you're seeing guys looking at names that have lagged and, and, and looking for the catch-up trades. I think you want to stick with the horses that have gotten you here. So whether it's mega cap growth, you know, Alphabet, Microsoft, or whether it's within the cybersecurity complex or, you know, I'm more focused on the semiconductor space. Um, I think just want to be very selective because, I mean, it's 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 not going to be a one tide. Everything rises together. And I think, you know, obviously, I think you guys were talking about the art, you know, Kathy Wood earlier in the show. And that's a, that's a, a, stock, a chart that's just done absolutely nothing. 
continues to average down on the kind of names that haven't been working. And, and historically, that's just not a you know, averaging down on your losers. It's never a really winning strategy. So I think you stick with what's been working and, and forget about the names that have kind of been left behind, you know, you know hopefully post pandemic. Joel, appreciate that very much. Great to see you uh, and good stuff. Uh, Joel Kalina joining us from Webbush. Meantime, one tech stock to watch today, Uber, rising after announcing a revised financial outlook for the third quarter that forecasts a possible EBITDA profit of $25 million for the quarter. CEO Dara Khazrushahi joined Squawk Box this morning and had this to say about profitability. We're in a mobility business that's expanding into all forms of mobility on a global basis with very strong margins. And now we're proving its profitability, which is improving. The core business is going to hit profitability, possibly in Q3. And at the same time, we're gaining share based on third-party data. We're the fastest-growing uh, delivery platform in the U.S. right now. Uh, that's a great combination. They may be gaining share, but really interesting also to hear his comments about how prices are going up. Uh, yes, that does flow through to the driver, but you got to wonder, Carl, how those higher prices impact demand when people may opt to get somewhere a different way, take the bus, drive themselves. <laughs> yeah, he did say uh, that pricing would ease somewhat in the second half, and last week's volume was pretty good as we continue to look for telltales about the recovery. But, John, it's hard to talk about Uber uh, without talking about the discount that it trades at compared to Dash, which obviously you brought us earlier in the week. Yeah, and we, we talked uh, yesterday to Tony Hsu uh, at DoorDash and really wanted to find out what's going on with the labor market. He seemed pretty confident in that, at least from their perspective. You know, uh, dashers, as they call uh, their delivery drivers, not looking for a full-time uh, job working for them, but looking for that uh, occasional a few hours a week. And he said that they're not having trouble finding people. So we'll see if that flows through to the other names as well or if there's becoming a bit of a bifurcation even in, uh, in the labor market, even within the gig economy. So let's stick with this volatility, taking a look at semiconductors. Uh, as our next guest says, semis are increasingly becoming an enigma. Demand's never been stronger, supply never tighter, and yet conviction weakening daily with investors increasingly fearful that the peak is near. Joining us now, Bernstein analyst Stacy Rasgan. Stacy, uh, good to see you. So, um, Tell, tell us more about this conundrum that we're in with semis right now. Are we going to learn more in Q4 based on how supply plays out? Yeah, yeah, we will. I mean, like every day we're learning more. And, you know, like I, I, I said in, in the quote you had, it is a bit of enigma. Um, numbers are going up every quarter. Demand is off the charts. All of these companies are running flat out. Um, everybody's still crying about supply constraints throughout the industry. And yet investor conviction is getting worried. Most semi-investors have seen this movie before. Um, they do worry that we're getting close to peak. And in fact, over the last three months, I think estimates, forward estimates have gone up something like 15%. Um, multiples have come down, you know, 5 to 10%. I mean, the stocks have gone up, but not nearly as much as the numbers. Um, conviction is, is just waning. And it's sort of interesting because, again, by, by definition, mathematically, every day we're getting closer to peak. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of like cross currents in terms of things, you know, good signs and bad signs. It's very hard to kind of get a feel for what's going on. By death, but, but I actually do think it's entirely plausible we could be close to peak for quite a while. Most of the companies, the, the you know the, the car companies and everybody else are 
talked about shortages lasting well into next year. This is not an implausible thing. So, I mean, this is going to look good until it doesn't. And we'll see how long conviction can kind of stay here um, as investors continue to worry about sustainability as we get into next year. Yeah, I'm hoping we get a lot smarter on this even next week. We've got AMD CEO Lisa Su at Code, hoping to get some insight from Qualcomm. But also we're starting to get these product announcements uh, from the likes of Amazon and Mm -hmm. Microsoft rolling out to just get a sense of how confident uh, they are and what their plans are for these products into the coming year. Um, What would you uh, ask uh, the chip designers, uh, chip makers right now about what they're seeing Q4-wise and their plans for the beginning of 22? Yeah, I mean, so, so you need to remember um, most semiconductor companies, their actual visibility into what actual true end-to-end is doing is precisely zero. They have, they have no idea. And I'm not knocking them. It's not bad. It, it just is. What they see are the orders in front of their face. Um, right now, those orders are incredibly strong. And I don't really expect that to change you know, over the next week or two, we actually just went through a, a bunch of conferences of the last several several weeks. Um, by and large, the tone coming out, I think your earlier guests called it constructive. I think that's a good word for it. It's been very constructive. Order patterns right now are very strong. They will be strong until they're not, but I don't expect that to change like in the next week or two. But Stacy, as you look at this strong demand, aren't there signs of deceleration, say, in the PC market? Are there areas yeah. where you see weakness in the coming year? Let's talk about a few of these these sort of discrepancies. So PCs is a great example. PCs have been incredibly strong. I mean, we did 250 million PCs pre-COVID. 2010, we did 300 million. 2021, we're on track to do 340 or 350. Massive growth. We started to see some PCs, like especially Chromebooks, they'll start to roll over. And I am actually convinced, you you talk about like inventory building and everything. I'm convinced that that CPUs have been overshipping, especially the notebooks by a wide amount. I think over the last several quarters, CPU shipments have been overshipping notebooks by 30%. So I actually do think that if we see anything start to roll over, it's likely to start in PCs. Now we can contrast this, say, with automotive. And, and obviously that's been an area where there's been a lot of issues. Auto semis today, if you compare to say, say 2018, like pre-COVID, they're probably 20% or even more higher today than they were. If you look at auto shipments, however, they are 10% lower, give or take. So there's a massive discrepancy between auto semi strength and autos. But at the same time, the auto vendors, they're actually having real production shortages. So like whatever they're buying, and they're buying a lot, they're obviously not getting enough of what they need to build the cars, right? So you have a lot of these things going on. It's actually different in every end market. PCs is one I would actually be watching, though, in terms of what we're watching for potentially rolling over first. Mm. Yeah. Stacey Raskin, thank you. We'll see what we can find out as we do uh, more of these interviews. Carl? All right, guys, thanks. Uh, No advantage for advertising names yesterday. We'll get a breakdown of media's biggest winners and losers coming up next. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Social stocks making up some losses after falling more than the broader market yesterday as investors did some profit taking. Now take a look at Snap, that stock up about 4%, Twitter up more than 2%, Facebook up just half a percent, Pinterest, the outlier here, it is down more than 1%, extending its losses after falling 4% yesterday. Now, just this morning, Facebook responding again to the exposés last week in the Wall Street Journal, claiming it has made progress in addressing issues of privacy, illicit content, and election interference, announcing that it now has 40,000 people working on safety and security. That's up from 35,000 in 2019. Now, Facebook and all the social stocks have outperformed over the past 12 months. Facebook up about 45%. Pinterest 40%, Twitter is up 55%, and Snap, those shares have roughly tripled. Meanwhile, the traditional media and communications names did held up better in the broader market pullback yesterday. Verizon ended yesterday actually flat, while Comcast and AT&T both were just marginally lower. All of the uh, Comcast, they're all sort of hovering around the flat line this morning. Loop Capital Markets did initiate coverage of Comcast this morning with a buy and a 71 price target on that stock. Loop predicting robust broadband growth will continue for Comcast, driven by an expanding footprint of available homes, increased penetration, and higher revenue per user. Meanwhile, Netflix is pretty much flat after losing about 2% yesterday. A new report from consumer research company Attest says that while Netflix does still dominate, dominate streaming time, the percentage of people who are streaming Five hours or more at a time is down to 12% this year from 26% last year. John, that still sounds like an awful lot to me. Yeah, that, that is indeed, Julia. And uh, along the same lines, Netflix is bringing users to the metaverse, but uh, in a way, Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. The company unveiling a new free-to-play virtual reality game, but you can't play it on Netflix. It's for the Oculus Quest which is owned by Facebook. The game's called Eden Unearthed, based on the Netflix anime series Eden. Reviews have largely been either positive or quizzical. It, it's important to note the app's uh, experimental, possibly still under development. It's posted on Oculus's App Lab rather than its formal app store, uh, meaning it hasn't gone through a full review process. Carl, this one, it, it's described in one review as being a very loose story and game structure a kind of halfway between a game and just an immersive environment. Maybe this is just Netflix experimenting, but it's got us talking about Eden, which I hadn't really heard of before. Uh, indeed. You know, we always talk about Netflix not having any other silos. They just make stuff to watch, but trying to drive engagement and viewing uh, through this new channel is interesting. By the way, Julia, also the story today about their first free 
and ad-free plan in Kenya as they try to drive some inroads into uh, Africa, key Africa markets. So that's kind of interesting. Netflix absolutely understands that the primary user growth is going to be overseas. The U.S. market is so saturated. But I think when it comes to holding on to those subscribers here and even adding new ones, it's all about expanding the franchises, doing sort of the Disney thing, taking a franchise and taking it elsewhere. And I think that's what's going on with this Oculus game here. But then I think we're going to also hear a lot more about Netflix trying to build its fan base Make sure that those fans are really connected to the brands and they have that big fan event coming up on Saturday that we're going to have to keep an eye on as well. Now, meantime, cybersecurity play CrowdStrike is up about 90 percent in a year and triple digits since IPO. Is there more room to run? Here from CEO George Kurtz. That's next. Plus, keep an eye on PayPal today. The company launching a new super app today that combines payments, savings, bill pay, crypto, shopping, and more. We'll continue to watch that story. Stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Julia Borston. NASDAQ S&P looking to recover from their worst days since May, as you know by now. We'll get a lot more on today's market action in just a moment. But first, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. DraftKings is reportedly making a $20 billion offer to buy Intena. British online sports betting company sources tell CNBC that the offer is mostly DraftKings stock. Intain shares are up about 20% on the news. DraftKings, however, is down about 7%. J.P. Morgan Chase adding another fintech acquisition. CNBC also learning that the bank has bought college planning platform Frank. No details on the size of the deal. Frank has served more than 5 million students since it was launched in 2017. Home construction rebounding in August. The 3.9% increase was better than expected and follows a decline in July. Although the rise was driven by a jump in apartments being built, single-family construction continued to fall. And here's another reason to start your holiday shopping a little early. Record backlogs of container ships waiting to unload continue to grow. 72 ships are in line to dock at the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. Some carriers are reportedly canceling voyages to allow the backlog to clear. And now, John, about 95 days away from Christmas. And that is a picture, a few pictures of what supply disruption looks like. Rahel, thank you. And now, big tech, some of the biggest laggards on the NASDAQ yesterday, trying to regrain some green today. Josh Lipton's got a look at some of the newest names on a discount. Josh? <laughs> so, John, it is a better day for tech bulls. The NASDAQ is moving modestly higher so far in today's trade. Of course, yesterday, the tech-heavy gauge finishing deep in the red. It's worst day since May. Apple now higher as well. Still, though, about 10% off its 52-week high. Of course, those new iPhones becoming available on Friday. Alphabet today hanging right around the flat line. Now, that one, of course, has surged higher this year, though it is still on track here to break an eight-month winning streak, the longest since 2009.
mind for that name. The SMH, the ETF that tracks the chips, tracking right now for its worst month since March 2020. It is, though, only about 5% from its all-time high. Joel Kalina from Wedbush just telling you all that chips are the place to be, in his opinion, pointing out that investments continue and chip makers are raising prices. Finally, the video game publishers, interesting to watch here. EA is actually tracking now for its worst month since October 2018. Take two and Activision Blizzard both about 30% off their highs. Andrew Erkowitz over at Jeffrey says, in part, recent game delays have weighed on these names. Activision Blizzard also acknowledging that the SEC is investigating that company, specifically around disclosures regarding workplace issues. Erkowitz tells me, though, he has a buy on all three stocks, betting that ultimately new compelling content does get released and sparks strong demand from all those gamers. Back to you all. Thanks, Josh. Now, CrowdStrike ringing the opening bell, the NASDAQ this morning, celebrating 10 years since the company's founding. The cybersecurity firm has seen more than 600% growth since its public debut a little bit more than two years ago, and it joined the NASDAQ 100 index just last month. Joining us now is CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz. George, thanks for joining us. You recently released your annual threat report, and the headlines are pretty terrifying. Why don't you break down what is really different about the threats you're seeing this year? Well, one of the things that we're seeing with the threats this year is just the speed at which these adversaries are moving. In particular, e-crime was up massively, and 75% of all the intrusions that we've seen are related to e-crime. One of the stats that we actually gave was something we call breakout time. And that is when, when an adversary gets onto a system, it takes about an hour and a half to move off that system to another one on the network. That's down from four hours in the prior year. So we're seeing the speed and the impact that they're having all across the globe uh, when we think about ransomware and just how devastating it is. Yeah, the, the threats moving faster, more of them. You just last week launched Falcon Forensics for GovCloud. How does this fit in to your portfolio of offerings and what is this going to enable you to do vis-a-vis the competition? Sure. We've got 19 modules today. I started the company. We basically had one. We IPO'd with 10. So we keep adding more modules. Falcon Forensic is a relatively new module that is geared at looking at a system and forensically examining it. Uh, And this is important not only for the federal government, but also for other commercial customers. And it's just one of many modules that we have. And uh, again, it's the reason why we've done so well is this modular Salesforce of security approach that we've taken. I wonder uh, if you can give us a sense of what's going on, George, with, with ransomware. You talk about the profit spider here. We sort of in the news can sometimes uh, be spotty on following uh, trends, particularly in security. We talk about it for a bit, then we don't talk about it. But that doesn't mean that the ransomware threat or that the persistence has flagged at all. Has there been sort of a professionalizing and even platforming of ransomware over the past few months? Absolutely. We see ransomware as a service. And the thing to remember is that the e-crime market is very fluid, it's very dynamic, and it's very organized. And uh, you can buy access to a particular company. You can buy ransomware as a service. You can buy uh, mule services to move money around. But the interesting thing about ransomware as a service is that, just like software companies, they're looking to to make it a subscription. And they also get 20% of the ransom that is created. So they can sell this kit to 
almost anyone, and any ransom that's collected, they'll take 20%. So it's a very well-run organization, many of them. Uh, they come and go, but they're here to stay, and uh, they're very persistent. George, I'm glad we have you on today because there were some headlines this morning about some Treasury sanctions regarding some uh, uh, some bad actors in the in the crypto space. The president mentioned uh, multilateralism and global coordination in fighting uh, cybercrime today at the U.N. I wonder that sort of uh, partnership between countries, is it a net positive or does it create complications that gets in the way of good policy? I think in general it's a net positive. Uh, you have to remember on the Internet, it's not just about the U.S., and a lot of these attacks are coming from abroad. And it, it, it's really it just the laws are different, uh, the interactions between governments are different. So if we can get to a level of cooperation from these governments uh, to help stem the tide, particularly in e-crime, I, I think it's a good thing. Uh, very interesting stuff. It'll be inter interesting to see what happens next in terms of a, uh, a global uh, unified approach to these very pressing issues. Thanks so much for joining us today to discuss. Thank you. And we mentioned it earlier, iPhone 13 reviews are out. Some of them aren't so laudatory. Let's hear the tech world's take on Apple's newest products next. Tech Check is going to be right back. How much better is this year's new iPhone, the 13? Well, a lot of reviews out this morning point to modest upgrades, some calling them, and this word is, is almost only used for iPhones at this point, iterative. The star of the show is battery life. Those improvements followed by camera upgrades, mostly in the 13 Pro Max. The journal's Joanna Stern highlighting the new models deliver on battery life, but some new feature promises don't hold up. She uh, spotlights cinematic mode there. She ultimately calls this push to upgrade perfectly fine iPhones to be off-putting. Uh, New York Times' Brian Chen calling the iPhone 13 the most incremental, there it is again, uh, upgrade ever. I guess that's not iterative, that's, that's incremental. Chen disagreeing with Apple execs who say the new cameras are dramatically more powerful. Through his own comparison, he concludes this year's cameras are only slightly better than last year's. And CNBC's own Todd Hazelton saying there's no reason to upgrade from an iPhone 12, but coming from an older model, you'll notice and appreciate the differences. And while we're on Apple, the journal reporting today, the company is in the early stages of new technology to detect depression and cognitive decline. Apple partnering with UCLA and Biogen to determine whether data obtained from its devices like facial expression and typing speed could be a signal for health concerns. Julia, back to the, the iPhone reviews. I think sometimes as reviewers, and I've, I've done reviews before, we can miss the point. At the high end, people don't necessarily upgrade for the whole phone every year. I don't know if there are a whole bunch of 12 people looking at the 13, unless it's for a very specific feature like that battery life, or maybe like macro on photos, something that you only get at the very highest end. I think that's going to determine whether, uh, especially at the high end, Apple has a very successful holiday season. Yeah, and I think a lot of people with the 12 probably are already pretty satisfied with the camera. The question is whether this camera would be better enough to make them switch. Uh, but I just have to say, John and Carl, I am so fascinated by all of these health things. I think we're in this moment right now where Apple went from being a communications device and an entertainment device and a productivity device. Apple's going to be the system for healthcare that you walk around with and carry with you every day. There are all these other devices like the Aura Ring that tracks sleep. But increasingly, I think we're going to see the watch 
and the phone together be used to be the sort of holistic health system, Carl? Yeah, I mean, well, we all know Tim Cook has talked about Apple's long-term legacy long after he's gone uh, being in the health space. You think back to the product event last week uh, where the watch was clearly about health and just riding your bicycle. Uh, but the cognitive decline bit is exciting, uh, John. And then CNET today, I see they say the iPhone 13, a delightful upgrade, um, some exciting upgrades, but familiarity is part of the charm. I think at the high end is where it gets interesting. I really I want to try that cinematic mode. Yeah. Um, being notified about other people's cognitive decline is exciting. I'm a little bit afraid <laughs> yeah. about my own, but Carl, I, I just also downloaded iOS 15 this morning. I must say, uh, it, it's interesting. Apple's continuing on this mode of like asking me what I would like, you know, in mail, what I like to have my IP address blocked and notifications, what I like these certain notifications, not do this. And that's like one of those relationships where the other person is trying to be very careful about making sure that I feel safe. Um, you know, so hopefully that pays the way uh, for them in health because they need to be careful with that. Yeah, obviously we're going we're gonna to monitor all the high-frequency order data and wait time data that the street is interested in terms of gauging the success of the new model. And speaking of Apple, uh, B of A today talks about the China risk. They do forecast some strong growth for the company despite some of those possible regulatory risks in China. Big market for the phone. A lot more tech check ahead as the markets try to hold on to the rebound. Dow after dipping red, now up once again, 136. The SEC launching a wide-scale investigation into video game publishing giant activism Blizzard as it, how it handled employee allegations of sexual misconduct and workplace discrimination. That's according to a report out yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. SEC subpoenaed Activision, known for game franchises like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, and several of its executives, including longtime CEO Bobby Kotick. The agency is requesting documents regarding board meeting minutes, personnel files, and separation agreements the company has reached with uh, staffers this year. In addition to Codex communications with other senior executives regarding sexual harassment or discrimination complaints by employees. Activism Blizzard's uh, top lawyer has also stepped down and this morning, Julia, it is uh, if not the biggest laggard on the NDX, it's one of them. Yeah, that stock now down two and a half percent. will be interesting to see what the next shoe to drop is in that investigation. Meantime, Bernstein is out with a list of top picks for the long term, taking the top spots, Microsoft, Amazon Visa, and Dark Horse Netflix. Catch the full call at CNBC.com. Tech Check is back in two. Well, we're no longer in the red, so let's take a look at some NASDAQ 100 gainers. You can see Trip.com, Regeneron, Atlassian, uh, who we've had on recently, and ASML among those names. Carl? Uh, meantime, John, fintech company Revolut announcing today it will offer commission-free stock trading in the U.S. in the coming months. The U.K.'s largest private company valued at $33 billion, now set to compete with the likes of Robinhood and Square. And joining us this morning, Revolut CEO Nikolai Storonsky. Uh, Nick, congratulations on this part of your ongoing push uh, into the U.S. and certainly now retail trading, but you're taking on some big names. Can you talk about your ambitions? Well, basically, we want to bring trading to U.S. Uh, in Europe, we already have more than 1 million uh, trading customers. We're one of the largest uh, brokers in Europe. And then we want to offer our product to U.S. customers. So the benefit of using our product uh, to the likes of Robinhood is that, apart from offering U.S. stocks, we'll be offering European stocks, Japanese stocks, Australian stocks, and so on. And because we provide you uh, interbank FX rates, you'll be able to trade 
foreign stocks are much cheaper compared to the likes of Robinhood. Right. Uh, talk about sort of the, the the process of getting to be, I guess we're, we're now calling the first global financial super app. What is that going to take? And more importantly, how expensive is it going to be to get there? Well, ultimately, the problem that I see in the world at the moment, especially in the U.S., so customers have one brokerage account, they have a one or two bank accounts, they have a multiple credit cards, they have insurance provider. It's all very inconvenient because they're Basically, to get access to a new product, I need to go through onboarding with a new provider. Then these providers that don't really talk to each other, for example, my bank account doesn't really know what's happening with my brokerage account. They don't really know what's happening with my insurance account and so on. We're actually solving this problem uh, by providing one simple app with one onboarding. And then within two minutes, I have access to all the financial services that you need. And then pricing for the services either free or 10 times cheaper compared to, to other providers. So that's the benefit that we're offering. But, but Nick, we did just see PayPal launch its own one-stop shop app, really trying to simplify things and bringing all of its different services into one place. I'm wondering if you see that as the main competition or who you see as, as your main competition, whether it's Robinhood or PayPal or Square. Well, to be honest, I believe that our market is uh, very large and then it's, it's very fragmented. Yes, obviously, you know, some, some of the companies will try to adapt the same model that we have as a financial super app, but at the moment, I don't really view them as, as a competition. Because again, it's, it's, a, it's a $1 trillion plus market in terms of revenues uh, every year. And it's very fragmented between banks, brokerage companies, PayPal, e-commerce companies, and so on. Yeah, lots of different things, Nikolay, which makes you wonder, are you looking at getting into buy now, pay later, which has models in Europe as well as in the US, or is that not part of your strategy to cover all consumer needs? Well, that's obviously you know, one of the best that we're going to uh, develop uh, in the nearest future. But apart from this bet, we have multiple other bets, such as insurance, acquiring, pay with Revolut, and so on. Um, and I wonder, do you think uh, that there's sort of a difference in fintech needs in different markets similar to the difference in needs in messaging. WhatsApp took off, I think, in Europe because of the, the difficulty uh, messaging between countries that the U.S. consumer didn't feel as much. Are you kind of differentiating your offerings based on region? So basically, uh, we do certain localization, but the difference is not as large as, as, as you think. I think the reason, you know, why WhatsApp took off in Europe compared to other countries is just because they, they were first to, to enter Europe. And I think really it's, uh, it's, it's a game of first move with the right product for, for consumers. So uh, a company that would be able to provide uh, great financial services for every single product line under one up uh, should be able to win because that's superior proposition compared to, to single monoline products. Nick, there's been a lot of back and forth between SEC chair Gary Gensler here in the U.S. and, and a variety of companies, uh, some of it surrounding the idea of payment for order flow. Uh, your view on, on that as a revenue source and whether or not regulation here in the U.S. It, it provides some uh, business friction? I mean, to be honest, as a company offering uh, stock trading services, we do not rely on our pay order flow uh, as you know, in Europe, it's uh, prohibited through MIFID regulation. And uh, I think in, in, in the future, like in one, two years time, we also see the same or similar kind of regulation in the U.S. 
So our business model does not rely for on payment for photo flow. Nick, are we going to watch you closely, obviously, given the big name investors and uh, whether or not uh, you continue on a path to what some believe will be a public offering either uh, in Europe or in the U.S.? Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of buying now, one more thing here. Google's not giving up on the office. The journal reports the Alphabet subsidiary buying a New York City office building for $2.1 billion and what will be the priciest sale of a U.S. office building since the start of the pandemic. Google now one of the city's largest property owners. They paid nearly $2.5 billion for office space in Chelsea in 2018. I believe that's where they've got that new store space. That comes as more companies increase their footprint here in New York, Julia. They're, they're playing it for the long game, uh, John. And we should mention the Universal Music Group, the company wrapped up in Bill Ackman's back investment, has completed its spinoff from Vivendi and is trading as its own public company. That stock is up about 35%. Um, and uh, we could take a look at Vivendi shares as well, if we could pull that up. Uh, but Carl, we see a, a surge there. Yeah, fascinating to watch. It'll be a busy uh, post-market tonight. Uh, of course, Adobe, Stitch Fix, and Federal and FedEx. Uh, don't forget, uh, Kramer has Adobe and CRM tonight on Mad Money. And then we'll get to the Fed tomorrow and that decision at 2 o'clock Eastern time. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.